Well, handouts are coming around. Welcome back to Grace Life and welcome back to the new year. Here we are, starting another one. We are continuing our study of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, Galatia is an area of central Turkey. It was an area where Paul's missionary work during his first missionary journey would have been in Galatia. Paul was teaching to these young believers the true gospel of Christ. And as you can imagine, and as is the norm, where Paul would go teaching the truth, others would come behind teaching deceptions and heresies, and this is no different. And with that being said, let me pray for us this, this morning. Father, we thank you for this time, and thank you for your word. Thank you for the true gospel, the one that Paul defends here. Lord, I pray your blessings upon this time. I pray that this would be a time that honors you, and may our fellowship be sweet. Amen. Okay, so Paul's going around teaching. He's teaching to these churches in Galatia, central Turkey. False teachers would come in behind him and try to sow heresies and try to sow untruth. And unfortunately, in some of these churches, these heresies were taking root. These false teachers were finding fertile soil for their lies. And we see that in Galatians 1.6. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. So this letter represents the first of Paul's 13 letters recorded in the New Testament. And from it, we can deduce many of the falsities that were being circulated by those wolves in sheep clothing. The first thing that is evident when you look at the book of Galatians is that these false teachers were calling into question the apostleship of Paul. They're saying he's not a real apostle. This, of course, makes sense. In order for them to establish their own authority, they had to tear down Paul's. And you see in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, Paul's defense of his apostleship. The second thing that these false teachers were going after was the teachings of Paul. They specifically impugned the doctrine of justification. Now, in its simplest and most basic sense, Justification is how one is made right with God. And that's the first on your handout. In its simplest and most basic sense, justification is how one is made right with God. <coughs> if there is a God, we all need somehow to be brought into a right relationship with Him. It may be through the right prayer, the right life, the right sacrifice, the right spell, the right experience, maybe it's the right incantation. Whatever formula you have, its purpose is always how is one made right with God. It is this universal problem that puzzles Bildad in Job. Job 25, verse 4, he says, How then can a man be just with God? Later the psalmist would lament in Psalm 130, verse 3, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer, obviously, is nobody. Nobody could stand. If God was actually keeping track, 
of iniquities, nobody could stand before him. This is the crux of every world religion. Every contrivance of man regarding justification in every false religion, the answer to the question of how to be right with God is always what, must, what one must do. What you must do. The true gospel, however, the one taught by Paul, is not what we must do. It's what we must believe. According to Paul, salvation is solely through faith and not through works. Now, in our modern vernacular, we would call this justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone. It is the sharp dividing line between those who adhere to Reformed theology, as we do, and those who preach, as Paul would say, another gospel. J.I. Packer describes justification by faith alone as the atlas of doctrines. The world of all other doctrines rests upon its shoulders. If it should fall, all other doctrines fall as well. Calvin called justification by faith alone the hinge on which everything else turns. John, J-Dub, where you at? J-Dub taught us last week on this, did a great job of covering it. Justification is a legal transaction whereby you are declared righteous before a holy God. Now, justification by faith alone means that your justification is completed at the moment you have faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ and that no other action or belief is required. Justification by faith alone means that your justification is completed at the moment you have faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ and that no other action or belief is required. Your salvation is affected by your faith in Christ Jesus alone. Nothing else must happen. Nothing else is necessary. Faith in Christ equals justification full stop. This is the key. And Christian, if you do not understand this, before we go any further, if you do not understand this, please come and talk to me. Those false teachers who were coming into the churches of Galatia were preaching justification by faith plus. They were adding to faith the works of the law. Much like today's Roman Catholic Church, they would give nominal assent to faith in Jesus. Yes, yes, believe in Jesus, but you also need to. And then the Roman Catholic Church is added to faith, sacraments, ordinances, and dogmas. They've added to faith. You have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to do this. You also have to believe this. In the case of these particular false teachers in Galatia, we can see from Paul's response that they wanted to add the obligations of the Mosaic Covenant to the requirements of Christian living. Thus, they were called Judaizers. Judaizers. They wanted to add Judaism to Christianity. And this was a big question for the early church. Did Gentile converts need to adhere to the Jewish law in order to be Christian? The question keeps coming up. You see it in the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. 
You saw it in the church in Antioch as described by Paul in this passage. You see it in these churches in Galatia now, threatening again the true gospel. So when considering this question, one must first understand what are works of the law? What does that even mean? Note that this is a, a phrase that Paul has used eight times in his letters. Romans 8.20, 8, uh, 8.20, I'm sorry, Romans 3.20, 328, Galatians 2.16, three times, Galatians 3.2, Galatians 3.5, Galatians 3.10. In each instance, Paul is using this phrase, works of the law, in the context of justification or receiving the Spirit, and he is invariably juxtaposing it with faith. He's always drawing it in comparison to faith. Works of the law, faith. More recently, some more liberal scholars have made the case that works of the law encompasses only those regulations that would necessitate the exclusion of Gentile believers, not entering into a Gentile home, not eating with Gentiles, dietary restrictions, circumcision, Sabbath practices. These are called the boundary markers of the law that are part of the cultural portion of the law that segregate and distinguish Jew from Gentile. The root problem then, according to these thinkers, isn't really legalism. It's not a failure to keep the law. Instead, the problem is ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism. That's, that's where they settle out. But our closer examination of Scripture would show you what Paul means by this phrase, works of the law. Works of the law is everything that is included in the Mosaic law. Works of the law is everything that is included in the Mosaic law. Galatians 3.10 For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. All things written. Galatians 5.3 And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Paul's clearly talking about all of it. The whole law encompasses every part of life. There are rules for society through the civil laws in the Old Testament. There are rules for relationships through the moral laws in the Old Testament. There are rules for worship through the religious laws of the Old Testament. These laws were seen as indispensable to being Jewish. They became part of the cultural DNA. And of course, as with every religion and every society, there were varying degrees of adherence to the law. But in some of the more extreme cases, like the Pharisees, the law was everything. So much so that laws were added to laws to ensure your obedience. So this brings us to the next term that needs to be understood as related to the law, legalism. Legalism. Legalism is anything that is our standard as opposed to God's standard that we have elevated to a test of justification. Anything that is our standard as opposed to God's standard that we have elevated to a test of justification. 
Legalism stems from the fact that the law was held with such high esteem that it is by the works of the law that many Jews would seek their justification before God. Their justification, they felt, came through obedience to the law. Keep in mind, though, legalism is not something that is found only in Judaism. Islam is legalistic. Mormonism is legalistic. Roman Catholicism is legalistic. Modern cults are extremely legalistic. This is something that still infects many Christian churches today. Things such as drinking, clothing, diet, keep how you keep the Sabbath, doctrine, what translation of scripture you're going to use. All of these can devolve into legalistic standards. But Christian, we must also be careful not to label someone as legalistic simply because they hold convictions that we do not. This is not to say that having standards in and of itself is legalism. We need to avoid that charge. In fact, it is not having standards at all that leads us to our next point of understanding, antinomianism. Antinomianism. The flip side of legalism is antinomianism. Now that is the false idea that we are under no obligation to hold to the moral law. Antinomianism is the false idea that we are now under no obligation to hold to the moral law. The thinking goes something like this. Since we live in a post-Mosaic paradigm and we function under grace, we are now freed from any ethical constraints. We can live however we want to live and God's grace will cover us. This is exactly the charge that was brought against the Protestant reformers by the Catholic Church. Johann Eck, who's, who was a Catholic theologian, most known for his debates with Martin Luther at the University of Leipzig in the earliest stages of the Reformation, accused the Protestants of antinomianism as did Sir Thomas More in his work, A Dialogue Concerning Heresies, which is a fictional account of a conversation with Luther. It still exists today. Antinomianism still exists today. People such as Joseph Prince, who's a, who's a pastor, Andrew Womack, Joseph Matera, Andy Stanley, I'm sad to say, I think is rapidly descending into antinomian theology. We will see this charge used in today's passage as well. Now notice the curious commonality between the legalists and the antinomians. They each live their life in relationship to the law. The legalists live a life of careful observance of the law. The antinomians live a life of indifference to the law. They're actually two sides of the same coin, equally wrong. It is never okay in Christianity to be a legalist, to give merit to any of our works. It is equally never okay to be an antinomianist, antinomianist to discard the law completely. In each case, their rules of conduct are still relative to the law. We as believers understand that our conduct, our lives, they're to be lived relative to Jesus Christ not the law. Now, okay, with an understanding of these four terms, justification, works of the law, legalism, and antinomianism, 
we get to our passage. So flip over to Galatians 2. Galatians 2, and we're going to start in verse 17. Now this is Paul's continuing address to Peter. Verse 17, But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found to be sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So what Paul is doing here, he, he is continuing his address to Peter. He is answering point by point the charges brought against the true gospel by the Judaizers. And that first charge is antinomianism. That's the first charge. I suspect these Judaizers who had previously come to Antioch and were now circulating in Galatia were Pharisees from Jerusalem. They were probably prominent and well-known. Whether or not they were actual believers who were just misguided, I don't know. I suspect they weren't believers. They were heavily invested in the works of the law, the mosaic prescriptions and proscriptions that we talked about earlier. They professed faith in Christ, but they could not leave the old things behind. They tried to meld their long and deeply held beliefs about adherence to the laws of Moses, to faith in Christ. You can be saved in Christ, you can be saved through Christ, but, but, just like the Catholics say today, you can save, be saved through faith in Christ, but you also have to. Remember, Antioch is a Gentile city. It had a population at this time, probably 500,000. Only 10% are Jewish. Most of Paul's converts then in Antioch would have been Gentiles. So when the Judaizers come to town from their almost exclusively Jewish city of Jerusalem, it's probably the first time they've ever seen a predominantly Gentile church. They're horrified to see Peter, who they see as a Jew first, and who hails from Jerusalem, behaving like a Gentile. Peter was, previously, an observant Jew. Remember his rooftop experience in Acts 10, where he has the vision of the unclean animals being let down from heaven in a sheet. And he's commanded to kill and eat. What was his response? In verse 14, he says, Peter says, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. He was an observant Jew. So for a Pharisee to see Peter, previously a devout Jew, behaving like a Gentile sinner, one without the Mosaic law, would have been scandalous, and in their minds, apostasy. Eating unclean foods, dining with Gentiles, worshiping with Gentiles, ceremonial washings and purifications, all left behind. So Peter is confronted by these Judaizers, and he's told that his emphasis on grace is actually promoting sin. 
He's breaking the law. They would use arguments like, you can never be too careful, can you? You must guard yourself and your followers from sin and from temptation. The best way to stay pure and honor Christ is through the law. Just follow the law and you will be okay. If you're following the commands of Christ and living like this, your liberty is promoting sin. Paul summarizes the accusations of the antinomians from the Pharisees by framing it as a rhetorical question in verse 17. And this is, this is what he's saying. If while we seek to be justified in Christ through faith in him alone, that's what he's saying, we're seeking justification in Christ through faith in him alone, if we are doing that, we ourselves then are also found to be sinners under the old law, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? So if we're doing this on faith alone, and we are found under your laws, under your restrictions to be sinners, does that make Christ a minister of sin? The charge is that by abandoning the works of the law as a means of justification before God, and instead seeking justification in Christ, Christians are lawbreakers, and living as those without the law, i.e. antinomians. They're accusing Christians of being antinomians. If salvation is solely by grace through faith, then according to the Jews, all moral constraints are now gone. You can indulge in, in any and all sins and still be justified before God. This new freedom in Christ for believers was not something that they could wrap their legalistic minds around. They couldn't get it. They just couldn't process it. The works of the law, the entire Mosaic rubric, was necessary, if not in a salvific sense, certainly in a moral and ethical sense, in order to assure a God-honoring lifestyle. They were completely invested in the law. It was so ingrained in their soul that they could not conceive of a time where the law would be fulfilled and a new covenant established. Couldn't cross their mind. They wondered, as did Nicodemus at the rooftop midnight meeting with Jesus, how can these things be? They couldn't comprehend it. Paul answers his own question in the strongest possible terms. May it never be. No, 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 no. It is impossible for a Christian to even think in these terms. No less than Christ himself declared in Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark 7, that no food can contaminate a person because food does not affect the heart. Peter also understood from his rooftop experience in Acts 10 that all foods were now declared clean. Later in Galatians 5, Paul is going to directly address the antinomian concerns of the Pharisees as he lays out for the reader what the spirit-led life looks like. We are not constrained by the old covenant any longer, but we are now free to live by the spirit to fulfill the new covenant. Christian, Paul would say, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do not submit to the yoke any longer. Galatians 
So Paul then proceeds to give his de a defense of his position that we are not justified by the law, but instead through faith in Christ. Verse 18. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. The age of living under the law is over for the believer. The law had its time, it served its purpose, but it is now done with. The word here for destroyed is in the aorist tense, which means it is a once-for-all finished event in the past. It is done. The law has been destroyed. The era of justification through the law ended with Christ's crucifixion. And that's Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. In the life of a believer, this end of the law happened at the moment of conversion when the hold of the law was broken and one would instead solely rely on Jesus Christ for salvation and moral direction. What Paul is saying in this verse then is this. Why would we want to rebuild what has been destroyed? If the law has finally been fulfilled and it has been rendered powerless why would we reinstitute it? The shackles have been loosed. Why put them on again? And this echoes the words of Peter, of Peter in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council when he said in verse 10, Now therefore, why do we put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the way that they also are, the Gentiles. The law represented the old. The law was meant to be a placeholder. The law was meant to be temporary. It was always pointing to something greater than itself. It always foreshadowed fulfillment. It was heralding a time when it would be satisfied and finished. God said to Israel, there will come a day when you no longer need the law. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Even in the Old Testament, God was saying, there's going to come a day where this covenant is abolished, and it's gone, and there's a new covenant with my people. This promised era in redemptive history had arrived. It had come. Salvation through faith in Christ represents the new age of justification. And Christ summarized this new paradigm himself in Mark 1, starting in verse 14. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. The time has come. 
No longer is your justification based on your works. No longer do you have to carry the burden of your ancestors. Your justification is now only contingent upon your faith in Christ. Only. Now more than that though, Paul is telling us that if we resort to the law again for our justification, we ourselves become the transgressors. We ourselves are disobeying the commands of Christ. Christ came to fulfill the law and then give us a new command to believe in him, John 11, 25. To love one another, John 13, 34. To live in unity, John 17, 21. So if you take what was rendered powerless in Christ and you rebuild it, you are no longer expressing your faith in Christ. You now become the transgressor. You are missing the entire point of the law. And that's exactly what Peter was doing when he withdrew from table fellowship with the Gentile believers of Antioch. He was forgetting the new covenant that Jesus had established by his blood. He was putting back on the chains of the law, dishonoring Christ, nullifying his sacrificing, his sacrifice and transgressing his commands. Now Paul continues his argument into the next verse. In verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul understood that the law was truly miraculous. To think that the God of the universe, ruler, master, would reach down into, into history. He would choose a people. He would teach them about himself through his law, which are a reflection of his attributes. That is a stunning and a sublime display of his mercy. The law was given to Israel at exactly the right time in history, but the law is also limited. The law itself extends no hope. It offers no strength, no help. It accepts no excuses or confessions. It is indifferent to repentance. It gives no comfort, no grace, no peace. It can only accuse. It will justly condemn. The law was given to Israel to show them their inability to keep it. Paul will go over in far more detail the role of the law and salvation in chapters 3 and 4 of Galatians. But for now, you must understand that the law had no power to save and it was never meant to. Paul is speaking from personal experience here. He's relating to the Gentiles his understanding of the function of the law in his life. However, this would serve as an example for all believers as well. The purpose of the law, Paul would explain to the Romans, was to reveal sin. In Romans 7, starting in verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For why I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law revealed to Paul his need for justification and just how far he, he was from God's holy standard. It revealed to Paul that he was still dead in his transgressions and the law could not help him. In a salvific sense, he came to realize that he was in the exact same position as the Gentiles. He was dead. 
And it was through the law Paul realized his state. Paul uses the phrase here, uh, died to. Died to. And he uses that many times in his writing. Died to the law. Died to self. Died to sin. Died to the world. When he does so, he means that in Christ, his relationship with each of these has been radically changed. They no longer dominate or control him. They don't define him. And once a person has died, the law no longer has any hold over him. Imagine a prisoner who's been convicted of murder. He is sentenced to death for his crimes under the law. He is scheduled for execution. The sentence is carried out, and he is now dead. The law has no further claim on this person. Now, if somehow, miraculously, he was to come back to life, the law does not get an op another opportunity to execute him. He is freed from the law. Now, in this verse, Paul also introduces and expounds upon one of the greatest truths of Scripture as it relates to the law. That is our legal union with Christ. Our legal union with Christ. This is shorthand, or the shorthand for this that Paul uses is in Christ, or in Jesus, or in Him. You'll see those phrases in his writings over 160 times. So it shows you how important it was to Paul. Now, many amazing things happened when you were, when you were saved. Steve touched on these last week in Big Church. You were made alive. You were spiritually dead, and God, through a sovereign act, breathed into your soul life. You became a new person with new desires. Your status changed completely. You were declared righteous, i.e. you were justified by God. You were taken out of the domain of darkness and you were put into the kingdom of Christ. Christian, that is good news. But wait, there's more, like they say on television. In addition to being saved, in addition to being recreated into a new man, you were united with Christ. What do I mean by that? At your birth, your representative before God was Adam. Because of this, you shared in his original sin. You inherited his sin nature. His disobedience, his sin was imprinted upon your soul and resulted in your spiritual death. However, once you accepted Christ, he became your representative before God. His obedience, his righteousness was now imprinted upon your soul and resulted in your spiritual life. You were now united with Christ before God. Paul, Paul's description of this union is, is found in Romans 6, starting in verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For with, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin 
might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Down to verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You were united with Christ in his life. You were united to Christ in his death. You were united to Christ in his burial. You are united to Christ in his resurrection. It is our union with Christ that allows us to say, because Christ lives, I live. John 14, 19. And it is not a stretch to say that because Christ lived a perfect life, I have lived a perfect life. Our legal union with Christ means that we share in and identify with every action, every result, and every blessing of Christ. Our legal union with Christ means that we share in and identify with every action, every result, and every blessing of Christ. And Christian, you need to understand this well. Our legal union with Christ is affected, which means it's a brought, E-F-F-E-C-T-E-D. It is affected, which means it is brought about by placing our faith in him. It's brought about by placing our faith with, with him. Nothing else. The very second you believe in him, you are united with him. So, what does Paul mean then when he says, through the law, I died to the law? It has to do with the idea that believers now have their identity in Christ. They have been united with him in his life and his death. Later in Galatians, Paul tells us that Christ was born under the law. And while he lived in the era of the law, he did not live under the power of sin. He was sinless, and therefore he was able to redeem those under the law. The reign of the law ended when Christ upon the cross took the full penalty of sin upon himself and thus fulfilled the law completely. As we vicariously identify with Christ through our union with him, we too have died to the law. The old self, the old man is now dead, crucified with Christ, and a new man lives. Now, live in this verse is a past perfect meaning, is past perfect meaning that it has that it's a thing that has happened in the past, has ongoing action now, right here. It happened then, but it has ongoing effect and action right now. I was resuscitated in the past and I live now. Since believers have died to the law and are now united with him, they are free to live under the control and love of Christ. We are free then to live to God. Before salvation, our only option was sin. We had no choice but to sin. Even our most altruistic, selfless, whatever actions are tainted by sin. But now that we have freedom through Christ's victory over sin to walk in the good works which God has prepared beforehand 
for us to walk in, Ephesians 2.10, right? We now have the freedom to do that. Before we could not, because we were dead. 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This is, in essence, the heart of the Christian message. The love of Christ controls us. Why? Because he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. This is part of our union with Christ. So Paul has now broached a topic he feels he needs to expand on. And this is verse 20, probably the most Awana verse of all time. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Like our death is through him, our union is with him. This new life that Paul has received is a direct result of his identification with Christ. But all the benefits of his death and his resurrection are without effect until we identify with him. John Calvin said, As long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. As long as he is outside of us, everything he did is useless and has no effect for you. When Paul says, I have been crucified, again, he is using the perfect tense. This is something that has happened in the past. It is a definitive act with ongoing present consequences. It is a once-for-all commitment of the believer. It is an irreversible act that has real and lasting effect on your life today. I have been crucified. Done deal, ongoing consequences. Thus, to be crucified with Christ is what it means to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. Philippians 3.10 you must understand, though, that this brings us to the second facet of our union with Christ. The first that we have described previously was our legal union with Christ. That was, that was uh, doing with our standing before a holy God. Our legal union changed our legal status before a holy God. The second aspect of our union with Christ is our vital union with Christ. Christ's action upon the cross and our identification with those actions has give us, given us a righteous standing before God. However, we're still here. We're still living in this body of death with a constant daily barrage of temptation and sin. It is a battle that I know we are all familiar with. God, though, did not leave us to fight this alone. Because we are united with Christ in his death and his new life, we too have new life. So our vital union with Christ means that we can live for him because we now have access to his energy and his vitality. 
Our vital union with Christ means that we can live for Him because we now have access to His energy and His vitality. Our vital union with Christ is appropriated by placing our faith in Him. Notice the commonality there? It's appropriated by placing our faith in Him. In John 15, 1-5, Jesus teaches us that He is the vine. We are the branches. All of our essential, life-giving, and sustaining nourishment comes from Him. All of it. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. Nothing. That includes living a life that honors Him. Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 29, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Whose power? His power, not mine. Christian, we're not simply justified by faith, we also live by faith. And this is exactly what Paul means when he says, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This is not some sort of a mystical, new age, subsuming of Paul's personality into the great divine. Paul is not extinguished. Neither is this a statement of perfection. He's not now living in an absolute accordance with the law of God under divine remote control. That's not what he's saying. Instead, what he means when he says Christ lives in me is that it is Christ who animates his life. Christ strengthens him. Christ sustains him. Paul continues, And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now notice, again, Paul admits he's still living here and now in the flesh. He has not been granted complete reprieve from his sin nature. The flesh is still here, and it is still strong. Temptations are plentiful. Our bodies still groan along with the rest of creation for redemption. But his motivation now for battling sin is no longer to achieve a right standing. He does not live, it, live by the law. He lives by faith. His motivation for obedience is now one of love for Christ. To seek to please him. To honor him. To worship him. That is true obedience to God's law. Now, in the end, it is Christ who was crucified, and it is we who are united to him for our justification and our sanctification. Did you catch that? It's for both. We're united to him for both our justification and our sanctification. Being in Christ implies our radical transformation and being indwelt by Christ. Christian, I don't know if we've ever had a culture more self-absorbed than ours. This is it. From social media culture to celebrity obsession. Can anybody tell me, is Taylor going to be at the Chiefs game today? <laughs> but the sad thing is, you all know exactly who I'm talking about. Right? Our, our celebrity obsession materialism, instant gratification, 
political polarization and a general lack of empathy for our fellow man. We are the Levites walking down on the other side of the road. We may look good, but too bad for you if you get jumped by robbers. We have no tolerance for any inconvenience. We have monetized the grievance industry. A whole new industry has popped up. What Paul is announcing when he says, it is no longer I who live, is the death of that culture, is the death of look at me, in perhaps one of the most externally focused statements of all time. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The world no longer revolves around me. It's not about me. It's about him and his glory. The moment we believe in Christ, we are in him. We are crucified with him. The old self has died. The law's demands against us have now all been satisfied. The law's hold over us is gone. Its dominion has ended. I am now a saint, righteous before God, beloved and accepted with Christ in me. I no longer bear the shame of my sin. I am now an honored child of God. And you want to know what the most amazing part of this is? It is only in Christ that you become your real self, who you were actually created to be. Christian, we are not self-actualized by the pursuit of sin. That's what the world tells me. You want to be your true self? Just chase after your heart's desires. I would tell you, don't do that because your heart's desires are probably wicked. You are not self-actualized by the pursuit of your sin. Instead, we are only completed when we die to self and live for him in unity with him. We were meant to live in fellowship with God and with each other. Now, the last part of verse 20 reveals to us God's motivation behind this new covenant. The old co covenant was a suzerain covenant. It was a series of conditional promises made by God to Israel. Now, suzerain, the word means king. It's a contract with a king. Yahweh would be their king and benefactor. Israel would be the client state. These promises of the suzerain covenant were both positive and and negative and they were founded on God's justice founded on God's justice there were blessings for obedience curses for disobedience and they went into the land and they stood on the mountains and they pronounced both we do this we'll get these blessings we do this we'll get these curses the new covenant of Jesus Christ was instead established on a different attribute of God love Paul identifies the contrast between the new versus the old and the last phrase of verse 20, who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see the voluntary nature of the sacrifice that sealed the new covenant, establishing Paul's gospel message. No one forced Christ to leave his own endless glory and to humble himself into a manger. No one obliged him to walk 33 years among the unholy stench of sin and death. No one compelled Christ to the cross. 
Christ voluntarily submitted himself to all of these shameful debasements to set a captive people free. John 10, 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. You see how personal this is for Paul. Paul here is passed out of theology, out of argument, out of rhetoric, and into a personal, deeply held truth. He has made a very simple statement, which any believer can understand, no matter how childlike your faith, that summarizes volumes of biblical exegesis. Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. Think about that. Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. Christian, I would submit that if you start every day reciting this to yourself, if you memorize it, if you meditate on it, you will be well on your way to living for Christ. Paul then puts the capstone on his argument by addressing the final charge of the Judaizers in our last verse for today, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. The concluding volley of the Judaizers may seem somewhat counterintuitive to us, but the party of circumcision had equated God's grace to the giving of the law to Israel. They were quite aware of their status as God's chosen people. And to this day, they still are. They know they are God's chosen people. They saw the law as God's ultimate expression of favor toward them. They understood they were chosen. And that choice was made by God's grace. And that grace is best exemplified by giving the law to Moses at Sinai. So if you set aside the law, goes their argument, then you are setting aside the grace of God, is what you're doing. Paul answers, if this is true, if this is true, if God's law is the ultimate expression of God's grace, and not Christ, but if it's God's law, if there is therefore another way to God, if there's any prospect of us earning our way to a state of righteousness through the law, then the cross was unnecessary. But the cross was necessary if it's the only way to bring sinners into a right relationship with God. If there's another way, Christ died for nothing. If there's another way, he lived the perfect life for nothing. If there's another way, his ministry was pointless and his work was in vain. Christian, there is no more scandalous or blasphemous statement than can be made. It is a very simple proposition for you. Either Christ did it all or Christ did nothing. There's no middle ground. Either you rely on your own merit and your own work or you wholly rely on him. Those are the options. I'm a simple guy. Those are the options. A or B. There is not a C. Far too many people, let alone religions, feel the need to add something to their salvation. We know 
We know Christ's death was sufficient, meaning it is all that was required. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Paul is very clear in his rejection of this heresy. It is not he who is rejecting God's grace. It is the Judaizers who put the emphasis on works. So, okay, you say, now what? What am I supposed to do with this? All right, I've got a few application points for you. First, beware of the dangers of legalism. Beware of the dangers of legalism. Christian, do not add anything to the true gospel. Paul is very clear about this. You are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2.8 There is nothing you have to do. There is nothing you can do. Do not put your ideas of what justification looks, upon, looks like upon others. Just because they don't share convictions that you hold to, don't assume they're lesser Christians. Our standards as to what constitutes evidence of true Christian life must be based on Scripture, not our own preferences. Second, beware the dangers of antinomianism. I don't think anybody here is a full-blown antinomian. But can't we all have little pockets of it in our life? Do you harbor a sin in your heart and refuse to deal with it because it's not that bad? Or everyone does it? Have you put limits on your obedience to the commands of Christ? I will go this far, but no further. Christian, if this is you, you are a functional antinomian. You see the moral commands of the new covenant, one that was bought by the precious blood of Christ, as arbitrary or subject to your own rationalizations. This is a dangerous place to be, Christian. If this is you, please talk to me. Finally, final point of application. Do you have union with Christ? If you do, then Christian, take advantage of it. You have a legal union that has changed your position. You have a vital union that has changed your power. You have his strength to battle sin. You have his strength to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Christian, I know the battle against sin is hard. It can be exhausting. But in him, you already have victory. Know it. In him, you have the freedom to obey. If you do not have union with Christ, then friend, to make today the day. Friend, if you have not submitted yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I plead with you to do so right now. There is nothing you need to do. All you have to do is believe. Believe that you are a sinner, that you stand condemned, before a holy God. Believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. That he lived the perfect life that you could not. That he died to death that you deserved. And he rose again on the third day to give you life that you didn't earn. Friend, if you want to pray that prayer and put your faith in him alone, please come talk to me. 
Talk to one of the elders. Talk to whoever brought you. Make today the day of your union with him. Make today the day of your salvation. Let me pray. Father, again, I thank you for the words of Paul. I thank you for the wisdom you gave him in writing this. I thank you for our union with you. Lord, what an amazing truth that is, that we are made whole, made as we were meant to be through our union with Jesus Christ. I thank you for the power to battle sin. I thank you for the free gift of salvation. Lord, I just thank you for this time and, and your word. Amen.